This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, we begin by going back to school. Oh, those wonderful, carefree days of yore, hmm? Well, some memories, I'm sure, are delightful. And then again, we all remember the school cafeteria and the, how should we say it, a questionable fare that was served up. Well, that's the theme of tonight's episode of Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Our Miss Brooks was a hit on radio from the very beginning. Within eight months of its launch as a regular series, the show landed several honors, including four for Eve Arden, who won polls in four individual publications of the time. Arden had actually been the third choice to play the title role. Harry Ackerman, at the time CBS's West Coast Director of Programming, wanted Shirley Booth for the part, but he realized that Booth was too focused on the underpaid downside of public school teaching at the time to have fun with the role. Lucille Ball was believed to have been the next choice, but she was already committed to My Favorite Husband and didn't audition. Then CBS chairman Bill Paley, who was friendly with Eve Arden, persuaded her to audition for the part. With a slightly rewritten audition script, Osgood Conklin, for example, was originally written as a school board president, but was now written in as the incoming new Madison principal. Arden agreed to give the newly revamped show a try. And according to radio critic John Crosby, her lines were very feline in dialogue scenes with Principal Conklin and would-be boyfriend Boynton with sharp, witty comebacks. The interplay between the cast, the blustery Conklin, nebbishy Denton, accommodating Harriet, absent-minded Mrs. Davis, clueless Boynton, scheming Miss Enright, well, they all received positive reviews. Eve Arden also won a radio listener's poll by Radio Mirror magazine as the top-ranking comedian of 1948 to 1949. Now, our Ms. Brooks. Palm Olive Soap, your beauty hope, and luster cream shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair bring you Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. <laughs> teaches English at Madison High School, is as conscientious about her work as any other teacher. But she's come to realize lately that there are things outside of the classroom which also demand her attention. There are two things which I feel I must do to keep abreast of the time. First, I read all the latest figures on the cost of living, and secondly, I never miss little Abner. <laughs> it's not that I approve of little Abner's grammar. But with my salary as a school teacher, I have to know what's going on in Dogpatch so I won't seem like a yokel when I move there. <laughs> Against this day, Mrs. Davis, my landlady, started last week to pack me a lunch so that I could save the money I'd spend in the school cafeteria. 
Although she's come up with some pretty weird recipes, the first sandwiches she constructed for me were made out of loganberry jelly and cucumbers. <laughs> I'm still grateful that I didn't have to eat the miserable food they've been serving in the cafeteria lately. Anyway, last Friday when the bell for lunch period rang, I realized I'd forgotten to bring my lunch from home. So I picked up my purse and a fifth of bicarbonate and... <laughs> But before I reached the door of my room, it opened, and our pr principal, Mr. Osgood Conklin, came in. Good morning, Miss Brooks. On our way to lunch, were we? We? Oh, you mean my person, me. Yes, sir, we were going to live dangerously again. <laughs> That's what I dropped in to talk to you about, Miss Brooks. Those kind of remarks about the cafeteria have got to stop. Oh, I realize that the food they serve isn't as good as the Waldorf Astoria... Or the Ritz Hotel. Or, or... Pete's Pigsty. <laughs> but you must remember, Miss Brooks, that our cafeteria is operated at a very low margin of profit. Now, I've just had some very disturbing news from Mrs. Dipson, the school dietitian. What happened? Did she eat there? <laughs> this is no laughing matter. Sales are falling way off. And although the Board of Education doesn't hold me directly responsible for the operation, the cafeteria is part of Madison, and I am Madison's ruler, a principal. <laughs> well, what do you want me to do, Your Highness? Uh, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> I want you to find out the temper of the student body. You have the confidence of most of the pupils here, Miss Brooks, and I must admit their attitude has me a little worried. I dropped into the cafeteria yesterday, and I could swear I heard rumbling. Is that before or after lunch? <laughs> Very amusing, albeit extremely ill-timed. <laughs> now then, Miss Brooks, I'm counting on your cooperation. Will you carry the ball for me? Yes, Mr. Conklin, I'll carry the ball, provided I can have someone to run interference. You know, help me out. Someone like who, for instance? Someone like whom? Don't show off. <laughs> Who do you want to help you? Well, I thought maybe Mr. Boynton would be good. The students in his biology class are very fond of him. They're not the only ones. Why, Mr. Conklin, you've been muscling into my subconscious. <laughs> that is, I usually have lunch with Mr. Boynton, and, well, together we... Very well. Draft him. <laughs> aye, aye, sir. But impress upon him the necessity for discretion. May all be just a tempest in a teapot. And remember, I want as little publicity in this affair as possible. Yes, Mr. Conklin, I understand. Good. As you were. <laughs> Let's see now, how was I? <laughs> oh, yes, on my way to the... Come in. It's me, Connie. You forgot your lunchbox this morning, so I brought it down for you. Oh, that was very sweet of you, Mrs. Davis. What's in it? What would you like to be in it? Well, frankly, I've gained so much weight since I stopped eating in the cafeteria. I'd like to find a thin sandwich in it. A thin sandwich? What's that? That's a Chiron-reducing tablet between two slices of rye crisp. <laughs> That's one I heard on Chef Milani's program. Oh, you don't have to worry about your figure, Connie. Although I do think it was a good idea of mine to start giving you lunch... So you can save enough to pay me the rent money. Oh, I'll get that straightened out as soon as possible, Mrs. Davis. Now, I have to go down... Oh, I don't want you to worry about it, Connie. As the old saying goes, there's no sense in both of us worrying. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I heard on Portia Face's life. 
You know something funny? What, Mrs. Davis? My brother Victor once saved so much money by eliminating lunches that he could afford to spend two weeks at the Mayo Brothers Clinic. (laughs) Mayo Brothers Clinic? What was he suffering from? Malnutrition. (laughs) And an English teacher shouldn't say suffering from. I'm sorry. I'd better be getting over to... My sister Angela once eliminated both breakfast and lunch for three months. She had to cut it out, though. Why? Her dinners were costing her a fortune. (laughs) Well, I'll be running along, Connie. You can tell me how you enjoyed the little surprise I made for you when you come home this afternoon. If I come home this afternoon. (laughs) I'll walk out with you, Mrs. Davis. I've got to go back to the cafeteria and see how things are going. Well, goodbye, dear. Thanks for bringing the lunchbox. You're welcome, Connie. Oh, dear, what's the use? I can't keep the secret another minute. Yes, what kind of a sandwich I made for you? Uh, parsley and banana. (laughs) On what kind of bread? (laughs) Gluten. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, Miss Brooks. Oh, Don't be scared. It's only me, Stretch Snodgrass. Well, why is Madison's star athlete lurking outside of the cafeteria? I ain't lurking. I'm not lurking. I didn't say you was. (laughs) Were. Were what? What were what? (laughs) You confuse me sometimes, Miss Brooks. Me too. What did you want to tell me? Just that when you go into the cafeteria, you shouldn't buy anything. The student body's going to boycott the place. There's a meeting right now with the board of Stretch... Stretch... Strategy. Oh, well, who, who, who's on it? <laughs> the board, I mean. Walter Denton and Harriet Conklin, mostly. Mostly, huh? Well, Harriet's father will mostly take care of her if he finds out about this. Where are they meeting? In the room where they print the school paper. You know, the Madison Monitor. I know the name of the paper, Stretch. I made it up. Oh, yeah? It's a very good name, Miss Brooks. Madison Monitor. What I like about it, it rhymes. Rhymes? <laughs> With what? Well, I don't know with what. It just rhymes. <laughs> Madison, monitor. See what I mean? If I did, we'd both be in trouble. <laughs> Pardon me, but is this the Office of Strategic Services? Oh, come in, Miss Brooks. Uh, close the door, Harriet. You see, Miss Brooks, this is a secret meeting about the food in the cafeteria, but we don't want the faculty to get wind of it. Well, how can they help it? On a clear day, you can smell it in Catalina. (laughs) Miss Brooks, this is Mr. Dunbar. He used to teach here at Madison. How do you do, Miss Brooks? Hello, Mr. Dunbar. I just stopped by to see Mr. Cogsman, but he wasn't in his office, so I dropped over to one of my favorite old haunts when I taught here, the newspaper room. Oh, did you used to haunt the newspaper room? I mean, were you uh, connected with the school paper? Oh, yes, indeed. I was faculty advisor. That's what Miss Brooks is now. Oh? Well, I don't want to disturb you. Go right ahead with your meeting. I'll just look through some of these old copies of the monitor. Okay, Mr. Dunbar. Now then, Miss Brooks, did anyone see you come in here? Why, no, Walter. Are you positive? No, I'm not positive. If I'd known this was a secret meeting, I'd have tunneled my way in. (laughs) Well, I guess we've got to take a chance. You see, Miss Brooks, we're going to circulate a petition among the students asking them to boycott the cafeteria. Boycott it? But, Harriet, what will your father say? I've talked to Daddy, Miss Brooks, and he says there's nothing he can do. 
I deplore the embarrassment this may cause him, but as student body president, my first duty is to my constituents. Here, here. I did, I did. <laughs> we just finished the preamble to the resolutions and the petition. If you want to hear it, I'll read it to you. Whereas and to wit. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? <laughs> I'm on the pink side. <laughs> When in the course of students' events, it becomes necessary to turn one's back on one's stomach, we the undersigned, exercising our constitutional right peaceably to assemble and to form a committee to seek redress of grievances, do hereby announce our firm intention of patronizing the Madison High School cafeteria only to use the tables, chairs, water, napkins, and toothpicks provided therein until such time as the duly appointed party or parties namely Mr. Osgood Conklin, principal, or the Board of Education, responsible for the operational bog-down which has befallen this installation, do take such action which will improve the food, lower the prices, and better the service in said cafeteria. It is also recommended that the person in whom this authority is vested do immediately proceed to the present chef in charge of preparing the food, and without further frippery or fanfare, chuck him the heck off the premises. Well, Miss Brooks, what do you think of it, huh? How much are you asking for the picture rights? Isn't it great, Miss Brooks? And look over here. We just painted these placards. That's in case the students vote to pick it. Pick it? Oh, now, wait a minute. This is Look getting... at this sign here, Miss Brooks. Let's see. Remember Tomaine. <laughs> Here's another one. Don't worry about your old age. Eat here and you'll never make it. <laughs> Here's one pitch made up. It goes, remember the saying, whatever goes up must come down? Well, in our cafeteria, whatever... Water! <laughs> I know the food isn't very good in the cafeteria, but... Just not very good, Miss Brooks? Well, pretty bad, then. Just pretty bad, Miss Brooks? Well, brutal. Hey! She's on our side! Here, Miss Brooks, take this sign. We're making you an honorary picket. But I don't want to be a picket. Don't you see, we've got to avoid all publicity, or Mr. Oh, Conklin... it's too late now. You're in this thing as deep as we are. I'm in this thing as deeply as you are. Well, this has certainly been an interesting little caucus, but I'm afraid I'll have to be running along now. Glad to have met you, Miss Brooks. Oh, thank you, Mr. Dunbar. Goodbye, Mr. Dunbar. So long. Goodbye, kid. Very nice fellow. Yeah, he used to teach English, too. Of course, now he's the editor of the Evening Gazette, one of the biggest papers in the county. He's been investigating conditions in the schools in this area. Oh, well, that's certainly a commendable sort of... <laughs> investigating conditions? But he just heard me say the food here was brutal. So? So I want you to be sure and watch for my picture in the Gazette. <laughs> you think it'll be on the front page? No, in Little Abner. There's going to be a new school, Marm, in Dog Patch. upon Walter and Harriet to postpone the cafeteria boycott until I could talk it over with Mr. Boynton and report back to Mr. Conklin. Then I hurried down to the biology laboratory. Come in. 
Excuse me, Mr. Barton, but I've got to talk to you about something. Could you come to the cafeteria with me right away? Well, but I haven't been eating lunch in the cafeteria, Miss Brooks. I bring my lunch. Oh, I do, too. See, I've got my lunchbox with me. But I thought we'd go to the cafeteria for some coffee, and I could tell you... Well, I've got a thermos full of coffee, and it's so much cozier than the cafeteria. Won't you have lunch here, Miss Brooks, with me? Well, Mr. Conklin, I tried. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose I could tell you what's on my mind after lunch. Oh, good. Sit right down at that table over there. Just push those jars to one side. All right, Mr. Boynton. Ah! What's the matter? One of these jars just smiled at me. Oh, don't be alarmed, Miss Brooks. A friend of mine sent those to me from Africa. They're shrunken heads. Well, if they're here for lunch, they can have mine. I'll just be a minute, Miss Brooks. I'm feeding my pet frog, McDougal. You remember, Miss Brooks, Mac. Hi, Mac. I always feed Mac before I eat myself. Just like the cowboy stars do in those Western movies. They always feed their horses first. Well, good for you, partner. First, uh, I've never owned a horse, but old Mac here is as close to me as any pet I've ever had. Yes, I know. Why don't we throw a saddle on him and go for a ride after school? <laughs> Look, Mr. Boynton, maybe I shouldn't wait any longer to tell you what I discussed with Mr. Conklin. Please, Miss Brooks, not while Mac's eating. This is a festive occasion. Let's not talk about anything serious. I heard a brand new joke the other day. Would you like to hear it? I might as well. It's sort of a riddle. It goes, why can't a woman swallow her apron? I don't know, Mr. Boynton. Why can't a woman swallow her apron? Because it goes against her stomach. (laughs) Fred Myers, the math teacher, told me that one. He's a hot sketch anyway, don't you think? Yeah, he's funnier than trigonometry. That new French teacher, Mr. LeBlanc, has a good sense of humor, too. As a matter of fact, he's supposed to have lunch with me today. He said he'd prepare something typically French at home and bring it into the lab. What do you think he'll prepare, Mr. Boynton? Frog's legs? (laughs) (laughs) She didn't mean it. Nobody's going to touch you while I'm around. Well, he's pretty sensitive, Miss Brooks. I'm sorry, Mac. I lost my head. Let me in, please. Oh, there's LeBlanc now. I'm sorry I have to kick on your door, Mr. Boynton, but as you can see, my arms are full. Hello, Monsieur LeBlanc. Oh, Mademoiselle Brooks. I'm doubly sorry my arms are full. Well, thank you, Monsieur LeBlanc. And I'll meet you in the casbah later. (laughs) Just put that casserole on this table here by those jars. Oh, very well. (laughs) Who are these? The Board of Education? Yes, African branch. <laughs> What's in the casserole, monsieur? Oh, it's a, it's a famous French recipe, Miss Brooks. It's called De Viande Delicieuse. Hachée et modelée avec délicatesse en sphère de forme gracieuse. Which means? Meatballs. <laughs> I assure you they are better than the food served in our cafeteria. Oh, that reminds me. The kids have gotten up a petition to boycott the place. Good for them. Well, it may be good for them, but it won't be so good for me unless I can do something to stop it. You see, I promised Mr. Conklin... Please, Miss Brooks, let us not talk shop, eh? Well, Mr. Boynton, everything is ready but the sauce. This I must simmer for a few more minutes. May I use your Bunsen burner? Oh, of course, I'll turn it up for you. I'm not very hungry. Could I just bo- boil a small egg in a test tube? <laughs> <laughs> Mademoiselle Brooks, just hold this dish right here. So, uh, now soon we will have the finest eating in the whole world. 
And while we're waiting, I tell you a story, yes? Oh, fine. <clears throat> well, this is a very old story that was handed down from the time of Napoleon Bonaparte and the Empress Eugenie. Please stop me if you've heard it, Miss Wolf. I doubt it. Eugenie and I weren't very chummy. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, once upon a time, there was an emissary from the court of England. But he was not an emissary. He was a spy. And he had a message to another spy tucked beneath his belt. A message in code, of course. Go on. Well, when this spy got to Paris, he was apprehended by the Sûreté. You know, the police. And so he took the message from beneath his belt and thought to swallow it. But he could not. Pourquoi? Why? Because it went against his stomach. I don't get it. (laughs) Wait, you say he had the message tucked underneath... Never mind, Mr. Boynton. He can explain it later. Could I stop holding this dish over the Bunsen burner now? My nails are melting. (laughs) Oh, but of course. Here, let me smell it. Oh, delicious. Yes, it just needs one thing. Let me see. Uh, Mr. Boynton. Yes? Do you think we could persuade Monsieur McDougal to stroll through the sauce? <laughs> He's only kidding, Magnon. I'll take it easy. Oh, that's a boy. There are some plates on that shelf over your head, Miss Brooks. Would you hand me a few of them, please? All right, Mr. Boynton, but I'm afraid I won't be able to join you right now. I'm too nervous about Mr. Conklin. If he caught us eating here instead of the cafeteria... Oh, will you please stop worrying about Mr. Conklin, Miss Brooks? I assure you, the only reason he goes to the cafeteria is for appearance's sake. He's probably got a nice homemade lunch hidden in the safe in his office. In the safe? Oh, don't exaggerate, Mr. Boynton. Oh, let's forget about Mr. Conklin and enjoy our lunch together, huh? Just the three of us, like the three musketeers. No, I make a toast. All for one and one for all. All for one and one for all. All for one and one for... Wait a minute. We're drinking formaldehyde. Three to the right. Four to the left. Now two more to the right. Ah, Now for a nice chicken sandwich. (laughs) Just the way I like it. Plenty of letters. Come in. Greetings, Mr. Conklin. I'm Martin Dunbar. I used to teach for you a few years back. Remember me? Dunbar. Dunbar. Uh, oh, yes, yes, of course. You taught Latin, didn't you? Well, you're close. English. Oh. <laughs> of course. Yes. Well, always glad to see any of my old teachers drop in any time. I did. I dropped in today. <laughs> oh. Well, I'm rather busy right now, so if you could... Ah, the same old evasive Osgood. What? Now, see here, young man, by what license do you call me by my first name? The same old pompous, Osgood. Pompous? Why, you? Who do you? What do you? How dare you take... And the same blood pressure, too, huh? Look, Osgood, as editor of the Evening Gazette, it's my duty to expose certain things to public view. Not all things, mind you, but just those things that have a rather unpleasant odor. Well, now, you leave our cafeteria out of this. (laughs) I mean, I didn't mention your cafeteria, Osgood, but now that you did, I think you ought to know at least as much as I do. Namely, the students here are talking about a boycott. What students? Probably just a handful of irresponsible, scatterbrained, troublemaking old. Uh Uh-huh. One of the pupils who told me about it was named Harriet Conklin. Just the type I had in mind. Nothing but a scatter... 
Harriet Ogden? <laughs> yes, that's right, Osgood. Your own daughter. And it isn't just the students that are rebelling, either. I heard one of your teachers refer to the food here as brutal. A teacher said that? Uh-huh. Now, that'll make a nice, juicy headline, too. Faculty member slings mud at cafeteria hash. <laughs> or Madison English teacher vilifies vittles. Did you say English teacher? I did. Miss Brooks is the name. She's in this thing as deep as any of them. As deeply, editor. <laughs> I told her... To... Look, now there must be some way we can straighten this thing out. I'll tell you what, Dunbar, old boy... Yes, kiddo? <laughs> Meet me in the cafeteria in five minutes. We'll, uh, we'll have lunch together. <laughs> I was on my way down there when you came in. Oh, all right. But uh, where are you going now? I'm going to find Miss Brooks and make her eat her words. Or worse, I'll make her eat in the cafeteria. <laughs> I'll see you in a little while, Dunbar. Oh, Mr. Conklin, before you go... Yes? You'd better slam that safe again. Your lettuce is showing. <laughs> Voila, that is the end of the story But if he has a message under his belt Mr. Boynton, why don't you get another meatball under your belt and forget the story? Aha! Just as I thought Oh, hello, Mr. Conklin Hello, Mr. Conklin Hello, Monsieur Conklin Don't hello me, you... you culprits Qu'est-ce que c'est culprit? Mr. Conklin will qu'est-ce que tell you in a minute <laughs> Miss Brooks, I entrusted you with a mission A simple mission that a child could perform And you failed me Instead of bringing me news of this insurrection You joined it Oh, but Mr. Conklin, There's I... no time for apologies now I want you to run down to the nearest good restaurant And buy the best lunch that you can And smuggle it into the cafeteria I... What's that I smell? Oh, it's from this dish here Say, that's a wonderful aroma Oh, but of course, of course It's my own recipe the viande délicieuse hachée à des modelés avec délicatesse. On verres de forme gracieuse. Meatballs, eh? <laughs> Are they really good? Oh, yes, sir. They're wonderful. Well, that saves somebody a trip. Bring the whole plate up to the cafeteria immediately, Miss Brooks. Now, you are acquainted with Mr. Dunbar, I presume? Dunbar? Yes, we've met. Don't sound so innocent. According to him, you shot your mouth off like it was the 4th of July. <laughs> I'll get that food into the cafeteria immediately. But, Mr. Con Immediately! Well, I must say that was the best food I've ever had in or out of a school cafeteria. Well, I wish you'd repeat that statement, Dunbar. I see my daughter Harriet and her idiot consort approaching. Oh, hello, kids. Hello, Mr. Dunbar. Hello, Mr. Conklin. Why, Mr. Dunbar, you've cleaned your plate. Of course he has. The food was wonderful, wasn't it, Mr. Dunbar? <laughs> it certainly was. Oh, that means we can call off the boycott. Well, what did you do, Daddy? Fire the chef? Better than that, my dear. Look, behind the steam table. An order of meatballs, please. One meatball coming up. <laughs> And now, ladies and gentlemen, we would like to bring to our microphone the Western editor of Radio Mirror Magazine, Miss Ann Daggett. Thank you, Mr. Lamont. 
And as you know, the current issue of Radio Mirror Magazine is now announcing the results of its annual awards based on a poll of radio listeners all over the country. It is my pleasant duty to present this scroll on behalf of those listeners who have elected as radio's top-ranking comedian, Miss Eve Arden. Thank you, Miss Saget, and my sincere thanks also to you listeners who made this award possible. I'd like to say at this time that I'm certainly going to try in the coming months to merit the honor you've bestowed upon me, because I understand that if I win this scroll two years in a row, I get to keep Mr. Boynton. Thank you, Sam. Good night. Next week, tune into another hour on this show, brought to you by Panonic Soap, your beauty hope, and luster cream shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written and directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Boynton is played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, Leonard Smith, Gerald Moore, and Bill Conrad. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North, the exciting, fun-packed adventures of an amateur detective and his beautiful wife. Tune in Tuesday evenings over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at this time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is TBS. Stay tuned for Nick Carter, Master Detective, next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Nick Carter, Master Detective. Yes, it's another case for that most famous of all manhunters, the detective whose ability at solving crime is unequaled in the history of detective fiction. Nick Carter, Master Detective. Tonight's curious adventure is... The Echo of Death. Or Nick Carter and the Phantom Clue. No, no, please. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. Hold him still. They're just like that. This has got to look right. No, I'll... I'll do anything you say. I'll forget everything I know. Only don't... All right. He's it. Now, come on. Hello? Yes, this is Nick Carter speaking. A case? What kind of case? A disappearance. Well, that's hardly my line. Uh, oh, I see. Yes. Yes. Yes, I understand. All right, expect us late this afternoon. You get that on the extension, Patsy? I should say so. Echo Valley Lodge, private amphibian plane waiting for you at the airport. Come at once, never mind the sea. <laughs> who is this Howard Manstead who tosses money around like confetti? A well-known millionaire sportsman, Patsy. But, 
Wouldn't it be more to the point to ask about the man who's disappeared? Oh, you mean James Dillow, the columnist. Why, he... he... Say, who is he, anyway? That's what you get for not reading the financial pages of the paper, Patsy. Well, come along. We've got to find a taxi and get to the airport. Well, aren't we going to take anything with us? Oh, yes, of course. I was forgetting. I thought you were. I'll need my new dress. You want but... Scubby. Call him and tell him to meet us at the airport. He knows Thurlow. They write for the same paper. Well, why aren't we going oh, to... Oh, and one other thing, Patsy. Bring along volume three of the encyclopedia, E to H. Scubby Wilson in volume three of an encyclopedia. That's just what a girl needs for a visit to a millionaire's hunting lodge. <laughs> visited because of its somewhat inaccessible location, Echo Valley is a natural freak of singular interest. I have friends you could say the same thing about, but the encyclopedia doesn't mention them. Quiet, Scabby. Let Patsy finish reading. Echo Valley is of great interest to scientists. Sounds occurring in certain areas of Echo Valley may be repeated as many as 13 times, echoing from cliff to cliff in gradually diminishing volume. Why do encyclopedias always use so many words to say so little? That's what I wonder about newspaper reporters sometimes, too. So we'll change the subject? <laughs> what else does it say? That's all. Well, that's no help. Thurlow certainly wasn't carried off by an echo. Oh, he's probably just lost in the woods. In any case, I don't see why Manstead insisted on you coming out to look for him, Nick. You're no Indian guide. Patsy, if Thurlow isn't found alive, it may cost the public millions. Millions? Well, he's just a columnist, isn't he? Just a columnist? He's the smartest financial reporter in New York. And Thurlow's more than just a reporter, Patsy. In the financial column he writes, he sometimes tips the authorities off to big stock swindles and other kinds of financial skullduggery. Right. It was Thurlow who broke open the Nemo Bank scandal three years ago and sent the whole board of directors to prison. And for some time, Patsy, Thurlow has been hinting in his column that he was on the verge of revealing some kind of tie-up between certain politicians and uh, one or two big operators that would rob the public of millions. Oh, then if anything happened to him now, before he's had a chance to tell anybody what he knew, the scheme would go through with schedule. Right. That's why he went to Echo Valley Lodge. Manstead, an old friend of his, invited him out so he could work in peace for a few weeks. Scubby. Huh? Is it true that Thurlow was on the verge of a nervous breakdown when he left? Oh, he was walking around in circles talking to himself, Nick. Hmm. He had almost all the dope he wanted, but he still hadn't got the name of the guy behind the whole scheme. He took along a whole bunch of records of stock transactions. He said they might give him the clue he needed. And... Hey, look ahead of us. Echo Valley. It is, isn't it, Nick? No doubt of it, Patsy. But look, that isn't any echo flying toward us. A plane. Nick, it's a plane flying up out of Echo Valley. Yes. Yes, it's a private amphibian. I thought this plane of Manstead's was the only one in these parts. And the pilot's seen us. Huh. He's turning out of our line of flight. I suppose he wants to avoid us. I'll bet he doesn't want us to see his markings. He is trying to avoid us. Oh, pilot. Swing over so we can get a look at that plane down there. Right, Mr. Scotter. He knows we're trying to get closer to him. Look at him back to avoid us. He's turned back. He's heading away from us now. A pilot, overtake that plane if you can. Yes, Mr. Scotter. Say, isn't that the Manstead hunting lodge down there, right on the edge of the lake? Yes, Cubby, it is. But we're not going to land until we get some idea what that plane's up to. He's diving straight down now. He's going to try to get away underneath us. Oh, he'll never make it. Those private planes aren't built. His wing is breaking off. Couldn't take the strain. 
He's heading straight for the ground if he hasn't got a parachute. Oh, but he has. Nothing's helping. Yes, shoot, helping. And there goes his plane into the trees. Well, that was a narrow escape. He didn't have more than 500 feet of altitude. He's come down on the top of that tall pine. He's caught there. See, his parachute won't come loose. Yes. Well, we'll have to land and rescue him. Besides, I want to know why he was so anxious to avoid having his plane identified. Oh, pilot. Yes, Mr. Carter. Land in the lake and taxi up as close as possible to the place that fellow came down. Okay. Aren't we almost there? Yes, there's the clearing. Just ahead. Only a few more steps. Oh, and they say exercise is good for you. Oh, there. There's his parachute. I think I can see him hanging among the branches. He's hurt or he'd call to us. Come on. His shroud lines are caught among the branches. I can see that much. Well, he's just, just dangling there. Yeah. Hey, you up there. Can you hear us? You all right? He doesn't answer. Look, I'll climb up and see if I can... No. Wait. What is it, Nick? Look at those shroud lines. They're, they're wrapped around his neck. Yeah. Look at the way his head is twisted to one side. Yes. His neck's broken. He's dead. What? Oh. When he landed in the tree, he got tangled in the lines and... I wonder. Nick, what do you mean? Look down at your feet, Scubby. Huh? Cigarette butt. What? Somebody must have been here before us. Maybe. But its position makes me think the cigarette was smoked by him up there. Oh, but that's impossible, Nick. It's been just about an hour, Scubby, since he crashed. He knew we'd come after him. So if he was hurt and couldn't get out of his chute harness, what would be more natural than for him to smoke a cigarette and wait to be rescued? But he... He's dead? Because somebody reached him before we did. And murdered him. And so that's the story, Mr. Carter. As much as we know, anyway. Thurlow just wandered away yesterday morning and never returned. Hmm, I see, Mr. Manson. And you don't think this mysterious airplane we met just before we reached here has any connection with Thurlow's vanishing? Well, I don't see how it could. But then, as I said, I haven't the slightest idea where the plane could have come from or who was flying it. Yeah. Now, let's go over the facts again, if you don't mind. Oh, of course not. Thurlow arrived here a week ago? Yes, with his wife. I had them flown in in my plane. They had the lodge to themselves with my permanent housekeeper to look after them. And you arrived yesterday? In the middle of the afternoon. But Thurlow wasn't here when you arrived? No, he'd already gone out. Hmm. He told his wife he was taking his revolver along and would take pot shots at the trees and rocks. So you never actually saw him. That's right. The woodsman I employed to look after the property asked me to come and examine some trees he wanted to cut down. About sundown, I got back to the lodge and Thurlow still hadn't returned. Mrs. Thurlow was becoming worried. I ordered the floodlights we used for landing the plane at night, but he didn't show up. And then in the morning, you called me. Well, first I phoned the nearest forest ranger station. And after that, Mrs. Thurlow was so agitated, I had promised I'd send for you. Where is Mrs. Thurlow? I'd like to ask a few questions. Well, she's sleeping now. She was up all night, and this morning the housekeeper gave her a sleeping tablet. 
Shall we wake her? No, 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 not just now. There's still an hour of daylight left. I'd like to take a look around outside. Perhaps I'll... I'll open it. Uh, Mr. Manstead. Johnny, what is it? His hat. We found it. Thurlow's hat? Where? Near the waterfall. Why, that's not far. It's only a mile from here. It's still light. Do you want to come with us and look for him, Mr. Carter? Yes, I think I do. Manstead, in that bush. But what in the world could Thurlow have been doing in here? This isn't the trail to the waterfall. It isn't a trail at all as far as I'm concerned. It's a jungle. It used to be a trail to an old one-room cabin, but there's no reason Thurlow would go there. Well, maybe if we yell, he'll hear us. He might be in there with a busted ankle or something. Go ahead and try, Scabby. Thurlow! Thurlow! Good gosh, will you listen to that? Well, that's one reason this is called Echo Valley. The cliffs around the waterfall down the trail make a perfect sounding board. Well, if he didn't hear that, he must be dead. If there's a cabin in there, we'd better take a look at it. Right. I don't see what in the world Thurlow could have come this way for, but maybe he did. Let's find out. There it is. Where am I, Sid? Oh, there, between those two trees. See it? Oh, yes. It's only another 40 yards. Well, come on, then. Oh, Scubby. Wait. Well, sure, Nick. What is it? That bare patch of ground there. Those footprints. Thurlow's footprints. You sure, Scubby? Sure. I've seen those pointed shoes of his too often not to recognize the footprints anyplace. Come on, Nick. Um, yes, yes. I'm coming. Thurlow's a tall man, isn't he, Scubby? He's a tall man like I'm Henry Ford. He's about five feet five. Why? I thought it... Well, never mind. There's the cabin. Gosh, it doesn't look as if it had been opened in years. Well, it hasn't that I know of. But there are Thurlow's footprints going right up to the door. And somebody's opened the door recently. Look at these broken spider webs around the door jams. But it won't open now. Here, let me try. It ought to open without any trouble. Yeah, but it doesn't budge. <laughs> That's strange. Let's take a look through the window. The window's boarded over. The boards haven't been touched. I nailed the window up myself three years ago. Nobody came here since. And someone has come here. Thurlow. And he must be inside now. But the window hasn't been touched. And the door is barred on the inside. It looks bad. We'd better break the door down. Suppose we have old Johnny use his axe on it. That'll be quicker. Of course. Johnny, smash the door open for us. Stand back, please. That door was locked to stay locked. Starting to go. Yeah. That does it. It's open. You don't mind? I'd like to go in first. Of course. Uh, it's dark inside. Here, take my flashlight. Thanks. There he is. Follow. He's, he's dead. He came here, bolted himself in, and shot himself with his own revolver. Yes, he's dead, all right. And it does look like suicide, doesn't it? Now, now, Mrs. Darrow. Jim couldn't.
couldn't have killed himself, Mr. Carter. He couldn't have. I'm sorry, Mrs. Thurlow. I wouldn't intrude on your grief if it wasn't necessary. Now, first of all, what kind of mood was your husband in yesterday morning just before he disappeared? He was very agitated. Agitated? Well, do you know any reason why he should have been? I, I think he just found a clue to the identity of the man he was seeking. The one behind this plot to upset the stock market. Did he say who it was? No. No, he just said he'd stumbled on a clue. And he was so shocked he could hardly believe the evidence. That was why he went out into the woods. He wanted to be alone to think the matter through. Perhaps his notes will tell us what he found. Yeah, I thought of that, Nick. After Mrs. Thurlow woke up and I talked to her while you and Scubby were out with Mr. Manstead, we tried to read his notes. But they're in some kind of a shorthand that nobody can read but himself. I can make out a few words here and there, but not enough to help. Well, we'll have another try at it later. Uh, please go on, Mrs. Thurlow. Well, that's almost all, Mr. Carter. Jim went out about ten in the morning. I stayed here in my room reading. About half an hour later, I thought I heard a shot. All of a sudden, I was terribly frightened. Frightened? Of what? I don't know. It was just a feeling. Then, then I heard the far-off echo of somebody hammering. It was... It sounded like somebody hammering down the lid of a coffin. And I'm positive it meant that Jim was dead. <laughs> Probably someone chopping down a tree, she heard me. Anyway, she went back to her reading and forgot about it. And around one, man said from from the village, a little town about ten miles from the hills, for Johnny to come for him in the station wagon. Man said phoned. But didn't he fly in by plane yesterday? Seems not. The plane was in New York getting a new propeller, so he took the night train. Is that so? Anyway, Johnny went to meet him. He got here about 2.30. The rest of the story is just the way he told it to us. Nick Thurlow must have killed himself. It just isn't any other answer. I wonder, Patsy. I wonder. Hello? Yes, speaking. Did you get the dope I wanted? He was? And the plane? Then check every airfield within 50 miles of the city. Yes, I know it's a big order, but somebody's playing this game for big stakes. No, that's all. Call me back when you've learned something. Oh, uh... Oh, hello, Carter. I... I didn't know anybody was here in the library. I took the liberty of phoning New York. I was trying to check on that mysterious plane that we saw crash yesterday afternoon. I see. Did you learn anything? Nothing yet. You know... I have a theory about that plane, Carter. I'd be interested to hear it, Mr. Manstead. Well, we're only a hundred miles from the border, and in the past, planes engaged in smuggling aliens into this country have landed in this region. Now, I'm willing to wager this chap, who was so anxious to avoid being seen, was engaged in doing something like that. <laughs> Certainly sounds plausible. Nick! Oh, Nick! Oh, yes, Gummy. Oh, there you are. Oh, top of the morning to you, Mr. Manstead. Good morning. Say, I was looking for the two of you. Or a stranger Thompson or two of his men are down at the landing waiting in your launch, Mr. Manstead. They want to get started down the lake to bring in the body of that flyer who, uh, <clears throat> who was so unlucky when he bailed out of his plane yesterday. Uh, of course. Uh, you're coming with us, aren't you, Carter? Uh, yes, indeed. I'm just as interested as you are to see if your theory turns out to be right. 
Oh, what about Patsy? Shall I go find her? No, no, Scubby. She's staying here in the lodge with Mrs. Thurlow. They're going to spend the morning going over Thurlow's notes, trying to decipher them. Well, let's get going. I want to get back in time to phone a story to my paper. Uh, I was afraid it's no use, Miss. Please, just call me Patsy. It's just impossible to read these notes of Jim's, Patsy. They're not only in his own shorthand, but... Most of them are in code, too. Here's something that seems as if it might mean something. See, it says, I can H-B it. H-B? Mm-hmm. Hardly believe. I can hardly believe it. Yes. Of course, that's what it means. And here's some more. It's clearer. Shall I tell Nansted what I know? The next line. Better not. Instead, must get back to New York. Well, that's clear enough. But the next line, my life, M-B-N-D. That doesn't mean anything to me. My life, M-B-N-D. My life may be in danger. And then there's just one last sentence that he never finished. To think that the one man in the world. That's all there is. Oh, oh, if it only finished. That the one man in the world. Who do you suppose he could have meant? I can't even make a guess. The one man. Mrs. Thurlow. What's that? Mrs. Thurlow, we're going to go and take a look at that cabin now while all the others are away. I have a theory and we're going to find some evidence to prove it. It has to be there. It just has to be. Nick, my friend. Hey, what's troubling you? You've been sitting out here on this rock for an hour ever since we got back, looking mean enough to bite your grandmother. Scubby, that poor devil of an aviator whose body we brought in was murdered. And Thurlow was murdered. And I can't prove it. But, Nick, couldn't you be wrong? The aviator certainly looked like a natural accident. And Thurlow, if I ever saw a case look more like suicide, well, I don't know where it was. That's just it. The aviator, I can explain. Someone slipped through the woods, reached him before we did, climbed the tree he was caught in, and strangled him with the shroud lines in his parachute while pretending to help free him. But, Thurlow, his own footprints leading into the cabin. The window boarded over and the door bolted on the inside. If somebody killed him, well, how did they get out? I don't know, Scubby. It isn't possible. And it was done. I'm going to break the... Hey, Scubby, what's that in your hand? Oh, just a shiny new nail I picked up somewhere. Somebody must have been fixing something. A nail? And Mrs. Thurlow said she heard the echo of hammer blows the morning her husband died. Yeah, said they sounded like somebody hammering down the lid of a coffin. <laughs> they sure have imagination. But that's just what she did here. Huh? She heard the echoes of somebody nailing down the lid of a coffin. been all over the cabin inside and out a dozen times now, Patsy. If there was anything here, we'd have found it. Mrs. Thurlow, somehow your husband was murdered here. And his body left inside this cabin so it would look like suicide. I'm going to find out how the murderer got out leaving the door and window bolted or... or die. 
I'm afraid you're much more likely to die, Patsy. Oh, oh Mr. Manstead. Yes, Mr. Manstead. After we returned to the lodge and I learned the two of you had disappeared in this direction, I thought I'd better find out what you were up to. You? You killed my husband. Of course he did. Who else could your husband have meant by the one man in the world he'd never have believed guilty? But, but he was Jim's friend. That's what he wanted you to think. He pretended to be a friend so he could always keep checking what your husband learned. And he invited you both here so he could commit murder if he decided it was necessary. A very interesting theory. But I'm afraid I can't give you a chance to tell it to anyone else. Johnny. Right here, Mr. Manstead. Come inside and close the door. What are you going to do to us? He thinks he's going to kill us. He hasn't got that gun in his hand for fun. Johnny, the old mine shaft is close by. Now, if these two ladies out walking had the misfortune to stumble into it, it would be very tragic, wouldn't it? Lots of people fall down old mine shafts. So they do. And I'm afraid another such accident is about to happen. You can't get away with it, Mr. Manstead. Nick Carter won't let you. Oh, well, perhaps even clever Mr. Carter may have to have an accident. Help me silence him, Johnny. Quickly. No, no, please. Quiet. No. Quiet, I say. All right, now, Johnny, knock them both on the head and keep them quiet. All right, Let Manstead. Go. Let go of her. You, Carter. Nick, look out. He's got it. Drop it, Manstead, or I... Johnny, kill him. Johnny, put down that axe or I'll shoot. Yes, sir. Dead. I'm afraid so. That's it. Either of you hurt? No, Nick. Came just in time. But how? How did I know Manstead was a murderer? I knew that from the time we found this cabin. But it took an echo to prove it. The echo, Mrs. Thurlow, that you said sounded like someone hammering. But, but I don't understand. Scubby's bringing Ranger Thompson. Soon as they get here, I think I'll be able to clear up a lot of mysteries. So Manstead was behind the plot that Thurlow uncovered. He invited Thurlow here in order to find out what he knew. He discovered Thurlow had evidence which would tell him the truth, and therefore decided to eliminate Thurlow. But, Mr. Carter, Manstead didn't get here until after Thurlow was dead. He came by train. And... Oh, Ranger Thompson's right, Nick. He appeared to come by train. Actually, he flew in the night before, in a plane whose pilot was used to taking big fees for keeping his mouth shut. That was the plane that we saw crash. Something delayed it from leaving in time to avoid us, and in the pilot's effort to keep away from us, well, we all know what happened. But, Nick, why was the pilot murdered? That was Johnny's work. As soon as Thurlow saw the crash, he sent Johnny by a secret trail through the woods to make sure the pilot didn't live to talk. Otherwise, his murder scheme would have collapsed. Isn't that right, Johnny? Yes, sir. So Manstead flew here the night before he murdered Thurlow. In the morning when Thurlow left the house, he and Johnny waylaid him. Is that it, Nick? That's it, Patsy. They brought him to the cabin here. Manstead put on his victim's shoes and made a trail of footprints. I see. Then they killed Thurlow, put his shoes back on him, and left him in the locked cabin. A clear case of suicide. But Manstead made a mistake there. His footprints were too far apart. They were the steps of a tall man. When Scubby said Thurlow was a short man, I began to suspect. Well, it certainly does sound plausible, Mr. Carter. But you've still got to convince me Manstead could get out of that cabin and leave the door barred from the inside. Make it good, Nick. Johnny knows the answer. You all remember that Mrs. Thurlow said she heard the echo of hammer blows. You mean she really did hear someone hammering? Exactly. This is a small cabin with a roof lightly nailed in place. Now look up there. What's that flashing in the sun? Looks like nail heads. 
Somebody's hammered new nails into that roof all along this side. Nick, is that the clue I was looking for? That's the clue you were looking for. Scubby and I saw it yesterday, but we weren't smart enough to know what it meant. Here, I'll take Johnny's axe and push the blade in under the eaves and pry upward like that. The whole roof's lifting up. Well, blow me down. Then Sid and Johnny pried up the flimsy roof before they killed Thurlow. Then leaving the door barred, they climbed out. And Johnny nailed the roof back into place. Right. So they were hammering the lid on the coffin, so to speak. Thurlow's coffin. And due to the curious echoing qualities of the rocks, the sound carried to the lodge. And Mrs. Thurlow heard it. I didn't think it meant anything until I noticed the nail Scubby picked up someplace. The nail Johnny must have dropped. And then I remembered the hammering sound Mr. Thurlow spoke of. And suddenly the whole thing was clear. Well, it sure wouldn't have been clear to me if you hadn't explained it, Mr. Carter. I certainly wouldn't ever have worked it out with just an echo for a clue. Oh, but that was an unusual echo. Remember how cleverly it answered? And when it comes to answers, Scuppy, Nick Carter is the man who gets them. This was another strange experience of Nick Cotter called The Echo of Death, or Nick Cotter and the Phantom Clue. The curious adventures of Nick Cotter, Master Detective, are brought to you every Monday night at 9.30 Eastern Wartime. We'll let Nick himself tell you about next week's story. What'll it be about, Nick? I call it Death Across the Tracks. It began with the murder of a detective. A railroad detective who lived in the station alongside the tracks. He was working on a case, but he had it only partly solved when he was murdered. And I picked it up from there. I'll say you did, Nick. You almost picked up a few bullets into the bargain the way the victim did. (laughs) When you called it death across the tracks, you were right in more ways than one. This sounds more and more intriguing. And how did it wind up, Nick? Well, we'll tell you that next week. But I can say this much. I had a stroke of luck. Nick always calls it luck when he uses foresight. Good night, folks. (laughs) Yes, good night, folks. And good night, Patsy and Nick. In tonight's strange adventure, Nick Carter was impersonated by Lon Clark. Patsy was impersonated by Helen Choate. Original music was played by Lou White. The entire production was under the direction of Jock McGregor. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Nero Wolf, followed by My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.